be seated. Well, I look out and I see some familiar faces uh, missing, but I also see quite a few visitors here today, and I see several that we haven't seen here in, in some weeks, and whoever you are, we are so thankful for your attendance this morning. Our hope and our prayer is that the time we spend here together will be strengthening, uplifting, beneficial for all of us who have the privilege to be here together today. If you've ever stayed in a hotel anywhere, then you've undoubtedly seen the Bibles that have been placed in virtually every hotel room by the Gideons. The Gideons have translated the Bible into over 100 different languages, or distributed them in those translations, I should say. And if you look in one of those English translations, at least, you flip to the preface, and it will have one single verse translated into each of those hundred-plus languages. It's probably the most famous verse in all the Bible. John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The whole of the gospel is told in just those few words. In fact, it's all summed up in one brief, single-syllable, four-letter word. Love. God loved the world. And he loved it to such an extent that he demonstrated it in this way. He sent his son into the world to secure the world's redemption. What was wrong with the world? Why did it need to be rescued in the first place? And why was the cost of obtaining it so high? The world was perishing. And that it might not perish, God sent His Son so that whoever believes in Him might have eternal life. So in this text we see on the one hand, a loving and giving God. And on the other hand, we see a perishing, receiving world. Now, unfortunately, Satan has deluded the world into believing that God hates us, and that God wants nothing more than to condemn us. So we think of God almost at times, it seems like he's some sort of predator. He's there lurking in the bushes, waiting, hoping that he's going to catch us making some sort of mistake, and when we do, he's going to pounce on us. Or else maybe we think of him the way that the 18th century preacher Jonathan Edwards described him, as if we're a spider or some other loathsome insect, and he's dangling us here over the fire, and we're fortunate that he hasn't seen fit to cast us into it at least not yet. It's not possible for us to have a more distorted picture of God. And Satan never perpetrated a greater lie than when he painted that picture of God on human hearts. 
Because you see, Scripture instead consistently, repeatedly, from beginning to end, portrays God as a kind and loving and compassionate Father. He's unwilling that any should perish. He desires that all should come to repentance. And so for that reason, he manifested his love towards us in order to induce us to love him and to turn to him. In the Old Testament, we repeatedly see God presented this way. We see his love pictured towards humanity. Sometimes we think, well, maybe the New Testament God is that way, but in the Old Testament, God is, is vengeful, he's wrathful, he's condemning. But listen to the way that he appeared to Moses, Exodus chapter 34. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Or consider a few different readings from the Psalms. The first from the 103rd Psalm. I'll begin reading in verse 8. I'm going to read at greater length. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. Or from the 86th Psalm, verse number 5. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Or one final example from Psalm 130, verse number 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. We could multiply these examples even from the Old Testament. But it is in the New Testament that we have the love of God most fully and completely revealed to us. Because it's there we find the concrete example of his love. There the gift of his love is given. The preeminent relation, revelation of God's love for humanity is in the person of Jesus Christ. We cannot overemphasize God's love. We need to preach about it more, if anything. It needs to be the central doctrine around which everything else that we preach and that we teach and that we believe revolves. I read not too long ago a lament of sorts from one of these uh, people who is sort of a self-appointed watchdog, a, a policeman in the brotherhood. And he said, quote, I'm sick of everything being all love in churches of Christ these days. The doctrine of God's infinite grace and of God's love is the basic truth on which every other 
doctrine rest. Without that, everything else is just chaff. It's not wheat. It's not solid food that will feed hungry souls. If someone is convinced of the truth of doctrine, it doesn't matter how sound they are, they can teach everything correctly right down the line. But if they're not convicted that all of that rests on the foundation of the love of God, then they're not really converted to Christ. They're not really following Him because they completely misunderstand what His mission is all about. Now they become angry partisans instead. They're ready to contend for their pet doctrine. They're contentious about all of the particular details, but they leave out the essential element that makes the gospel good news to begin with. I read about a preacher, and this occurred decades ago, 70, 80 years probably at this point. So this is not a new thing. But a preacher who was holding a meeting and preached two or three sermons to begin it on the love of God and on His grace extended towards humanity. And a brother cornered him after one of those lessons and he said, well, you know, all this has been well and good, but when are you going to start preaching the gospel? What he meant is when are you going to start preaching man's response to the gospel? The things we must do, faith, repentance, baptism. That's properly speaking the response we make to the proclamation of the gospel. You see, that brother just wanted to be proved right in his claims and that all of his religious neighbors were wrong. He wanted to establish his creed in a partisan manner. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. All of those things, faith, repentance, baptism, all of those things are important. They're urgently important. What God has done for us in Christ, the, the gospel is not of any benefit to us unless we appropriate it for ourselves. But too often, I'm afraid, we focus so much on what must I do to be saved that we rush right past what's prior to that. What God's done for us so that we can be saved. May God forgive us for our all-too-often misguided priorities. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, a passage a lot of us are probably familiar with. Paul declares that the gospel is God's power to salvation. This is the thesis statement of the letter of Romans. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Paul says. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. That word power in the Greek is the word dunamis. It's the same root from which we get English words like dynamite, dynamo, dynamic. And even if it's not quite perfect, I think that helps us to get an idea of what Paul's saying here. When Paul says the gospel is powerful, think of it as God's dynamite toward salvation. This is what moves people. It draws them inexorably like a magnet to God. What is it that draws people to God? Will preaching nothing but our duties draw people to God? Will talking about nothing but doctrines cause people to be moved? 
We're preaching laws and commandments just like they're the arbitrary acts of a capricious tyrant cause people to love God? No. And it won't make them love each other either. Does that mean commandments aren't important? Does that mean the gospel has no conditions attached? Absolutely not. But what I'm saying is, everything that we do must result from hearing that old, old story of Jesus and his love, as we sometimes sing. That's what the gospel is. That's what the good news is. That the world was lost, remember? The world was perishing without God and without hope. But God, seeing that lost condition, loved humanity. And so he sent Jesus into the world to secure the world's redemption. That's the power that attracts. That's God's dynamite to salvation. As Jesus himself put it, I, if I be lifted up will, from the earth, will draw all men to me. And this, John says, he said, signifying what manner of death he should die. John chapter 12, verses 32 and 33. So if we want to preach the gospel, we must preach Christ crucified, lifted up, dying, the innocent for the guilty, dying that we might live. John writes in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Again, verse 19 of that same chapter. We love because he first loved us. We've probably all seen at some point grass that's been crushed under the weight of some debris, some rubble, and it, it's pale, it's dying. But if you examine it, you'll see it, it creeps along slowly until at some point it finds a, a crack, a break, and then it shoots upward out of there. And it comes to life. It grows. It's healthy. It's nourished again. What is it that attracts that grass? What is it that causes it to shoot up out of there? It's the light. The light penetrates the darkness and it draws it out. That's the same way with the gospel. It's the same way that God draws sinners to himself. We're groping about, lost in the darkness of sin. But the light of God penetrates the darkness until we leap up in response to it. And we're filled with new life. We're rejuvenated. We're redeemed. So in order to make humanity love God, God demonstrated his love toward us. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the power of God to salvation. We've spoken a great deal this morning about the love of God. But how can we adequately describe it? What can we compare it to so that we might fully appreciate His love? We might think about, for example, the story of Damon and Pythias. You remember this from Greek mythology? 
The short version is that Damon was willing to take Pythias's place. He was willing to die for his friend. But Jesus was willing to die for his enemies. In fact, Paul says, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, he died for us while we were enemies of God. What about the love of a, a parent for a child? We see this even in the animal world. The eagle mother, for example, she'll build her nest high up in the crags of the mountain. And if a forest fire sweeps over the slopes, she'll try to, to soar away and try to get her young to follow her. But if they're too young to fly, or if they're too afraid, she'll go back to the nest. She'll spread her wings over them and she will burn to death with them. Of course, the pinnacle of this is in human beings. Thankfully, more often in the past than today, some mothers would quite literally give their lives in order to bring a new life into the world. But we all know, especially those of you who are mothers or parents yourselves, that the toil the sacrifice, the suffering, the sorrow that comes along with bringing that new life into the world. Then there are those helpless days of babyhood, those ungrateful days of adolescence. Hopefully we move beyond that into something better. But if you're here this morning, even if you didn't have the greatest relationship with your parents on at least some purely physical level, you're the benefit, or you're the beneficiary of that sort of uh, sect sacrifice, that sort of giving. And yet, even this love of a human parent for a child isn't comparable to that of our Heavenly Father. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. You see, the only way that we can properly express God's love for us is to take his own expression of it. There are at least two things that our finite human minds can't completely grasp. Probably more than two, but at least two. God's love and our sin. But I think we get an idea of the magnitude of both of those things when we see the price that God paid to redeem us from sin. I don't know what, what the net negative weight of just a single sin is. I don't know what the just consequences are of a, a life spent devoted to sin. But if sin wasn't terrible, and if its consequences weren't beyond all reckoning, then God wouldn't have acted as he did to rescue us from sin. The gospel wouldn't be good news. Sending Jesus to die would be, be absurd. It'd be worse than that. It'd be a crime. But if we really can appreciate humanity lost and broken, helpless, and hopeless, staggering and stumbling under the weight of sin with no power 
to extricate ourselves from. Then we're able to fully appreciate God's intervention. He heard the cry of his creation. He resolved to act, to do something about it. But what could he do? What sort of sacrifice could be made to redeem humanity? Not all of the lambs who'd ever been offered or ever could possibly be offered were a sufficient sacrifice. Not all of the accumulated treasure in all of the world was sufficient to save just one soul. What could God do? He took what was dearest and most precious to him and sent Jesus from the land of light and life to a world of darkness and death and hate. To be born of a woman, to live in the flesh, to die on the cross. He was born in poverty, he lived in suffering, he died in shame for all of us. We don't see the full test, the full strength of God's love until the shadow of the cross begins to fall. We think back to Jesus on the last night of his life, going outside the city of Jerusalem, up the slope of the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. His soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. He knows that his hours come. He knows the mob's coming soon and they're going to take him away. He was afraid. He was reluctant. And so he withdrew from his disciples a little space to spend some time in, in solitude, to pour out his heart to his father. Father, if it be possible, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. Take it away. Three times he prayed that prayer. And his agony was so intense that the capillaries in his forehead burst and he exuded blood through his scalp, ran down his face like sweat. How could God not be moved by that? How could he not hear the cry of his son? We compared the love of God to the love of a parent for their child. I'll ask you, you were parents, could you allow your child to suffer that way and to do nothing to act? How much more so for God? Did he not hear? Did he not care?
we can only describe God in our own limited human terms. We can only talk about him by analogy. But scripture describes him repeatedly as exhibiting what we'd understand to be emotions. And so if we can use what has been called the, the sanctified imagination for a moment, God heard. And God cared. That anguished howl from the Son goes up before the Father. You can see his lip begin to quiver with emotion. The hot tears form in his eyes. They fall down his cheeks. He looks down and he sees the mob now with torches lit steadily making their way up the hill. You can picture the heavenly throne room here. The angels suddenly go quiet. They're waiting expectantly. He's going to issue a command. He's going to do something. He's going to take the cup away. Surely the Father has to act. He could authorize 12 legions of angels just like that to go and to deliver Jesus. But then he looks again and he sees another scene. He looks down through all of the long, dark years and he sees teeming masses of humanity all suffering, all struggling, all dying under the weight of sin. All headed for sure and certain eternal destruction. He saw you. He saw me. My son, it's not possible. If you don't drink this cup, then all of my poor children of earth lost forever. The angels who delivered that message to him, ministered to him, they strengthened him. The sun arose, no longer afraid, but now calm, resigned. He met the mob courageously. He submitted to them willingly, knowing what awaited him. They dragged him through the streets of Jerusalem to the house of Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest. They put him through a trial where false witnesses swore out that he blasphemed. They took him before the Roman governor, Pilate, who signed out a death warrant reluctantly, delivered him over to be crucified, and they nailed him to a cross. He hung there bruised and bleeding and dying for you and for me. Finally, he cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. By the grace of God, he tasted death for every man. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. They took his body from the cross. And they laid him in a tomb. But he couldn't be held there. Three days later, God raised him up 
from the dead. Up from the grave he arose, as we sang just a few moments ago. He burst forth from that darkness of the grave. He abolished the grip of death and sin that it had held on humanity. But our point this morning is if you've never responded to what God has done for you in Christ, you're still in the grip of sin and death. If the world was lost and perishing without Christ, then if you don't have Christ, you're still lost and perishing. And if you could be saved without him, then, then he died in vain. Surely God should have removed the cup. But he didn't. Because there was no other way. And so this morning, I want to urge you to respond to the love that God's demonstrated in Christ by putting your faith, your trust in Him, turning to God in repentance, being buried with Jesus in baptism, die to sin, receive that new life, that gift of, Christ, of God's love, eternal life with the Lord. Now maybe you're here this morning, you already are a Christian. I look out over this audience and I see many, and I know one. Why do we need to hear this again? We all know this old, old story. Why tell it? As the saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. Do we really fully appreciate what God has done for us in Christ? Or do we just look on it with indifference? Do we see that the gravity of this that we've talked about this morning? Or do we just take it for granted? Going on about our business is something that, yeah, we know that happened, but it doesn't really affect my everyday life. Do we live in a manner that's consistent with the love God has demonstrated towards us? God loves you. Jesus died for you. How can we remain unconcerned? How can we not love Him and keep His commandments in response? If you've never come to Him at all, or if you have at some point, but you've wandered away, I would invite you to respond again in love to the love that God has demonstrated toward you today while we stand and while we sing.